All right, good afternoon, everyone, and, and welcome, to the, uh, welcome to the Atlantic uh, Council. I appreciate all of you coming and, and braving the, the Washington rain. It's that season when the, when the weather changes in about five minutes. Um, so I'm Magnus Nordman. I'm the director of the Transatlantic Security Initiative under the Scowcroft Center here at the, uh, at the uh, Atlantic Council. Thank you so much uh, to all of you for coming today. Um, and especially a warm welcome to, to Vice Admiral Andreas Kauser, who's the chief of the German Navy, uh, who you will hear more from in a, in, a, uh, in a few minutes. So Admiral, welcome to the Atlantic Council. And it, it's a pleasure to, to have you here at an important time for the, for the Transatlantic relationship. Um, also want to tip my hat and, and say a special welcome to Kathleen McInnes, who is uh, who's one of our senior fellows with the Scowcroft Center, who will help us moderate and, and lead the discussion after the, after the formal remarks. Um, so our event this morning, or this afternoon rather, is uh, Back to the North, the Future of the German Navy in the New European Security Environment, where we will hear from uh, Admiral Krause and Rear Admiral, uh, Admiral Ulrich Heinecke. Uh, and this is also the release of our latest issue brief on the, on the same, uh, same theme. Uh, and we, 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 will, we will all get together here on station to do, do a panel discussion, and then certainly we will welcome your, your thoughts and questions during the um, during discussion. Um, so Europe's north and NATO's role in the maritime domain are really two of our sweet spots here at the, here at the Atlantic Council. Um, over the last few years, we've done a, a, a lot of focused work on how to bolster, uh, bolster defense and deterrence in Europe against an increasingly assertive Russia, um, especially focused on Europe's northeast. And, and obviously, our, our publications and, and our events related to this can be found on our, our website at AtlanticCouncil.org. Um, but we've also paid special attention to NATO's role in the maritime domain uh, in the new European security environment. Um, and obviously, it is quite understandable that NATO's and, and allied responses to the, the first response to the Ukraine crisis uh, was very much ground-focused and, and what NATO needed to do to bolster defense and deterrence on the ground. Um, and obviously, real progress has been made there in terms of the enhanced forward presence battalions in, in the Baltic states and Poland. Uh, but obviously, lots is also happening in the maritime domain. Um, and this is where you find many of the close encounters between warships and aircraft from Russia, the United States, and NATO. Uh, the Russian Navy is increasingly active in the Black Sea, the Baltic, and, the, uh, and also in the Atlantic. Um, and, it, um, and while operating there, it is doing increasingly sophisticated things in terms of exercise and training. Um, and Russia's growing A2ED net, uh, networks uh, obviously also have implications for NATO's ability to operate Adam from the sea to, uh, to provide defense and deterrence and, and bring reinforcements forward. So over the last few years, we have uh, we produced a whole portfolio of analysis on this, uh, including a, an outline for a new NATO maritime strategy, a strategic assessment of NATO's current and future role at sea, and a proposal for a maritime framework for the, for the Baltic Sea. And I, I would welcome you to, uh, to take a look at those on our, on our, um, uh, uh, on our website. Um, so this event today builds on that work. Uh, we've done this work in partnership with the German Navy, which has allowed us to, if you will, pop the, uh, 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 pop the trunk, if you will, to look at German capabilities and strategy and plans. Uh, and based on this, the Council has generated a number of recommendations on how to further enhance collective defense and deterrence in the Baltic Sea region and beyond, uh, I should mention, uh, and how maritime forces in Northern Europe can work together uh, to, uh, with the German Navy to close capabilities gaps and operate more closely together as a cohesive alliance. Um, Germany is, of course, an important country in the Bal uh, Baltic Sea region, both economically and politically. Uh, and as one of the larger European NATO members, um, it's really significant uh, that the German Navy is now turning its gaze back to the Baltic Sea region and the North Atlantic and, and, the, broader, uh, and the broader maritime domain in, in, Europe's, uh, in Europe's north after, after almost two decades of crisis management and, and maritime security operations in the Med uh, and the Indian Ocean and, uh, and elsewhere. So I think this is really a, a maritime complement, if you will, to what Germany is already doing on the ground, 
where it leads NATO's Enhanced Forward Presence Battalion in Lithuania. Um, and we here at the Atlantic Council think that this will bring real opportunities for deeper regional and NATO-wide cooperation, uh, and also obviously enhance allied presence on, on NATO's northern, uh, northern flanks. I hope today will be an opportunity to discuss some of these themes uh, here on the panel, but, but also with you, with you in the audience. Um, so to tell us more about what, um, uh, what the German Navy is planning and, 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 the, uh, and the vision for the future, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, Vice Admiral Kausa with us uh, here today, who is visiting Washington. Um, he took up his duties as Chief of the German Navy in 2014, after having served as the Deputy of the German Navy uh, uh, for two years. Uh, before that, he served as the Deputy Commander of Allied Maritime Command Naples. Uh, he's a submariner by trade uh, and has served operationally as the commander of Germany's first flotilla and as the maritime task force commander of the United, uh, United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon. Admiral, again, thank you so much for being here with us, and uh, the floor is yours. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to start by expressing first and foremost my sincere thanks to the Atlantic Council. You are not only hosting the German Navy today, over a period of several months you have engaged in discussions with my staff and have produced a highly insightful paper. A paper, if I may say this, that is thankfully not content with lofty academic considerations, but draws clear and practical conclusions. Indeed, the Atlantic Council seems, does deem to the, the role of the German Navy as sufficiently important, as sufficiently important for the defense of Europe as to convene such a conference is both an honor and an obligation. And it's an obligation that Germany has indeed understood. In the end, that is what the paper is about. The willingness of allies and partners to provide the defense investment and warfighting capabilities to buttress the credibility without which deterrence doesn't work. Before Admiral Reinecke will elaborate a little bit more, let me please highlight the import of change of German security policy we witness. Since 1989, I have not witnessed anything but decrease, diminish, and rationalize. The peace dividend that Germany, as many other countries, has cashed in on has led to navies which have become even smaller while being deployed to low-intensity crisis operations ever more often. Those days are over. While contributing to crisis management operations around the world will continue to bind forces in the future, Russia's blatant disrespect of international law and willingness to use military power to pursue its political goals in the heart of Europe has brought defense and deterrence back on center stage. And once again, yet in a totally different strategic context, the eastern borders of the alliance and thus in maritime terms, the northern flank from the high north to the Baltic, the German Navy's traditional backyard deserve our particular attention. Germany has understood that all. The German defense budget has grown by 8% this year and will continue to grow consecutively for the coming years. Germany has agreed to all NATO capability targets and defense planning is set on a clear trajectory. And to all who call for more and less time, let me say this trajectory is already quite a challenge to cope with for industry as well as for the armed forces structures. Our Minister of Defense has therefore called, has therefore enacted the so-called turnarounds of finance and as described, but more importantly, on personnel and material. To some of the Navy-related procurement programs, the new submarine program together with Norway, 
six major surface combatants by the mid of next decade, and additional five surface corvettes, new helicopters, etc., etc. You have referred in to your, in, in your paper. Our biggest challenge, however, will be to align these three turnarounds because they are of quite different elasticity. Money, once the political will was found, was relatively easy. Procurement will take much longer, but personnel and the soft skills of organization behind are the, hard rest. They are the hardest. The proposition worked out in the paper of the Atlantic Council contributes to finding innovative solutions which will help us to tackle the formidable challenges ahead, together with our friends and allies in Europe and, of course, from across the Atlantic, the United States. With this, I thank you for your attention and I will hand over to Edmund Reinecke just to continue a little bit more. And I'm very happy and glad to come into discussion with you later on. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir, and I think everybody's eager to hear from the panel, so let me just briefly introduce you to the Baltic, the northern flank, and the role of the German Navy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Baltic Sea is a very special environment. Its size is roughly the size of the Baltic Sea. However, it is very shallow, long, and crooked. Close to Rostock, which is uh, our Navy headquarters, and 200 kilometers north of Berlin, there's the small Hanseatic town of uh, Greifswald, and um, it has been Swedish territory. So the Baltic Sea and the Baltic Sea Rim has always been an interesting place of seafaring nations, of trade, but also of fierce naval battle. And even Lord Nelson deployed uh, to the Baltic Sea with his fleet to fight uh, against uh, the Danes in front of Copenhagen. Especially in the times of the First and Second World War, it was an area of uh, fierce uh, naval encounters at that time. And that continued because the Baltic played a significant role during the Cold War, when NATO considered the Baltic approaches as vital for the alliance. It was a NATO task to defend them and to deny the Warsaw Pact westward expansion. The same applies to the North Atlantic, and in particular to what we call, from the Cold War area, the northern flank. It was also the scene of fierce naval battles during the wars and a hot spot during the Cold War. Personally, I remember my first days as a young watchkeeper uh, in the cold, wavy, and icy waters during the 80s. During the last 25 years, the situation has presented itself in a different, more positive way. Many Baltic Rim nations have joined NATO and are NATO partners today. Important infrastructure has been built around the Baltic and on its seabed. Trade increased and Russia seemed to have found its place. Alliance naval activity in the northern flank has decreased. Headquarters were closed. Without repeating known detail, the situation has changed. Today, for us, access to the entire Baltic Sea and protecting the transatlantic link on the northern flank are essential for the security and the well-being of our populations. Free sea lines of communication, unhindered access to the entire area during peace, tension, and conflict are again in the focus of the alliance. However, during the Cold War, our main effort was to deny the wars or pack the use of the Baltic. Today, we are faced with considerable A2 AD capabilities. In addition, we have decreased our sharp teeth. German and Danish fast patrol boats and extensive mine laying capabilities are history, and there is no dedicated command and control like the former NATO headquarters for the Baltic approaches. Concerning the northern flank, the situation is comparable. The constant downsizing of NATO naval forces has left us with reduced capabilities. 
Both in the Baltic Sea and the northern flank, we are now confronted with a more assertive Russia, which could potentially use the entire spectrum of hybrid and military capabilities to challenge us. This has led to political decisions within the alliance and subsequent changes in NATO posture. The German Navy will play an important role in both theaters. We will focus on the following core capabilities of our Navy. Air defense and ballistic missile defense, underwater warfare with the aspects of mine countermeasures and high-end ASW. We will be the leading nation for conventional submarine operations and strengthen our command and control capabilities. We are, as we speak, starting to admit into service a class of modern F-125 class frigates. And the Admiral already mentioned that uh, the decision has been taken to procure submarines and high-end ASW combatants in the future. We will augment our littoral corvette force with an additional five units in the near future, bringing it to a total of 10. We have political approval to stand up a Baltic Maritime com Component Command with multinational contribution around a strong German maritime battle staff. Funding for a new generation of MCM vessels is secured, and our aim is to undergo a complete overhaul of our air arm, which will bring new helicopters to the fleet and start uh, and state-of-the-art equipment to our maritime patrol aircraft. And as importantly, we are building strong strategic regional partnerships. The German Navy initiated the Baltic Commanders Conference. Within its framework, we develop interoperability, bring our naval forces together for exercises and common doctrine. The German Navy can provide unique infrastructure, such, such as its submarine training center and its damage control and operational training center. We're experiencing increasing interest from our friends and neighbors to make common use of such facilities. This increases our mutual capability to force generate combat-ready forces as a regional deterrent. Early in the next decade, we will stand up a modern national command and control facility for our Navy in Rostock, and it will also host the infrastructure for the Maritime Component Command. With our upgraded P3s, a, a state-of-the-art force of conventional submarines and our new frigate program for the next decade, we will provide a major ASW force to NATO for the northern flank and the Atlantic. Let me sum up. In the next decade, there will be not one single year without the commissioning of one, at least one unit to the German Navy. We will strengthen our engagement in the Baltic and the northern flank as a force contributor and especially as a force multiplier to enhance allied capabilities and deterrence. Thank you very much. Um, if I could please invite the panel up. As you guys get situated, my name is Kathleen McInnes. I am a senior non-resident fellow here at the Atlantic Council, but I'm also the uh, international security analyst for the Congressional Research Service. It's an honor to be here to moderate this discussion. Um, I should note as a CRS uh, analyst, and I, I'm here to moderate a panel and facilitate the discussion. But if I happen to mention anything that could be possibly construed as, a government, as an opinion, it is mine and not the representative of the United States government. With that housekeeping, um, I want to introduce the panel. Uh, we have with us a, a very distinguished group. 
Uh, Ian Brzezinski is here to join us. Uh, he is a resident senior fellow here at the Brent Scowcroft Center. Um, he's on the Atlantic Council Strategic Advisors Group, and he leads the Brzezinski Group, um, which provides strategic advice and insight to government and commercial clients. And I would note, uh, near and dear to my heart at least, he was the DASD for European and NATO <laughs> policy um, before I was able to join that. That was my former office as well in the Pentagon. Um, of course, uh, we've already been introduced to Vice Admiral Krause, who's the chief of the German Navy, and who are absolutely honored you can join us. Um, and who I note well at, um, that you've recently served in Rostock, which is a place that I actually had the opportunity to, to visit in 2005 as what? a German Marshall, uh, German Marshall Fund okay. Manfred Berner oh, scholar. So, mm -hmm. um, and finally, Magnus, who almost needs no introduction, but who is the director of the Transatlantic Initiatives here at the Brent Scowcroft Center and has been a driving force in Washington on uh, NATO maritime security issues, among other things. Um, some administrative notes before we get started. Um, are, this is a panel that is on the record and for attribution. Um, I would ask that, um, our, particularly with our, our German colleagues here, uh, Issues that questions that stray into the things that are too political, uh, they will reserve the right to decline. Uh, they would rather, rather stick to military to military, <laughs> as I'm sure you can all appreciate. Um, and with that housekeeping note, I will turn it over to Magnus for a uh, introduction to his paper. Okay. Thank you, Aline. Thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, a bit more housekeeping. My my staff, who actually uh, runs things around here, also helpfully reminded me that we are streaming this event, so you can uh, for those following us online, uh, there's a hashtag to be, to be used to engage with us on social media. Uh, uh, stronger, stronger with allies, hashtag stronger with allies for those who want to f uh, follow good along hashtag. in social media. Very good. Good hashtag. Um, we, oh, like very good. we like it, we like it. Um, <coughs> so no, so you, um, uh, um, you already heard from me in the introduction where I previewed some of the content or some of the stuff, how, how we got at this. So I just want to spend a, a, a few minutes uh, or, or a few sentences on, on providing a few of the highlights from the issue brief. Uh, and how, the, uh, how we here at the council arrived at some of the recommendations on, on how, to take, uh, uh, how to take cooperation in, in the maritime domain further, um, uh, keeping in mind the German Navy's reorientation back to the, um, um, back to the north. Um, and the issue brief that we released today really, um, uh, really flows from our previous issue brief, a maritime framework for the Baltic Sea that I co-authored together with, with our distinguished senior fellow and board member, Frank, uh, Frank Kramer. Uh, and we sat down and did, uh, did some analysis around this and, and looking at primarily at the, um, uh, at the Baltic Sea, and I will come back to the North Atlantic uh, as well, but, but looking at the Baltic Sea, we found it was a bit of a um, bad news, good news story for, uh, for NATO and the, and the countries in the region. So first, if you look at some of the, the bad news, that certainly, as I mentioned, Russia is active and assertive in the maritime domain with increasingly sophisticated capabilities. Um, the A2AD network uh, that is coming out, in this case, Kaliningrad, but there are other places in Europe too, um, uh, really is a challenge to NATO and, and allied, allied naval forces and their ability to, to operate in the maritime domain. Um, and obviously, uh, the member navies have not, um, uh, have not been focused on this for almost 30 years. They have been elsewhere doing um, counter-piracy, counter-terrorism, crisis management, and, and so on, and not been focused on, on high-end, developing high-end capabilities and maintaining a, a high-end edge when it comes to ASW or, or, or surface warfare. Uh, and then, as was already mentioned uh, uh, this afternoon, the Baltic Sea itself is a challenging operating environment with, with shallow waters, conditions that limit underwater detection ranges, and a lot of natural and man-made maritime clutter. Um, and then, of course, there are capability gaps uh, in the, uh, if, you, if you review the navies of the region, there, there are capabilities gaps there in, in terms of long-range strike, air defense, electronic warfare, uh, anti-submarine warfare, and, and amphibious capabilities. 
But we also found there were actually some good news. Not, not everything is bad in this region. And there are things, uh, there are things that can be worked at to, uh, uh, to enhance, uh, uh, enhance defense and deterrence in the maritime domain. Um, for one, um, the navies there tend to be small, but they do tend to be pretty high-end and sophisticated. Um, so in, in aggregate, they actually do bring something to the, uh, to the table. Um, there are pretty well-established habits of cooperation. Um, uh, in, the, in the region, both, both with other NATO members, but also with the partner nations. Um, and, um, and oh, by the way, there are other NATO, NATO member navies uh, that can be tied in to, to help address some of those capability shortfalls uh, that we identified. So in this, uh, in this issue brief that we're releasing today, um, um, we're really taking that sort of approach and applying it to, uh, uh, to the event or the, um, or the trend of the German Navy reorienting back to the north and what the implications are for, for cooperation uh, and helping to, to close some of those, um, those, some of those capabilities gaps. So again, as has been noticed, uh, noted already, um, um, it will certainly help in bringing back some of the high-end capabilities needed in the region in terms of air defense, ASW, uh, uh, mine countermeasures, um, but it also opens up opportunities for, uh, for cooperation. Um, I'm not going to belabor that point further, and I thought we had actually had a pretty good, uh, pretty good review of that already with the, with the keynote, um, keynote remarks from our, from our German friends. So instead, of, I want to go to some of the recommendations that we have out of the paper um, um, that I think both here in Washington, but also, um, also in Germany, that, that can be thought about um, further. Um, so with, with, this landscape of, uh, with this landscape in Northern Europe and keeping in mind with, with the German Navy going, going back to some of these issues, uh, I think for the US, it should really consider um, adding a bit more of a maritime dimension to the next iteration of the European uh, Deterrence Initiative, right? It's been very, it's been very ground focused for very understandable reasons. It funds exercises uh, and uh, pre-positioned equipment, uh, which is all very important. Uh, but to actually get the U.S. Navy more involved uh, in, in some of the presence and some of the exercises that is, that is going on, both in the Baltic Sea but also, also the North Atlantic. Um, and that would obviously open up for new opportunities for, for cooperation with the German Navy uh, and some of the other navies in the, uh, in the region. Um, second, really press home and look for opportunities to tie Sweden and Finland uh, into naval cooperation with, uh, uh, with Germany. Um, again, both, uh, both countries are not NATO members, but they are important partners. Um, uh, they're signing a, a number of cooperation agreements with the United States, with the UK. Um, and, and I think Germany, Germany is obviously the next natural step, uh, and especially the naval or the maritime domain. Uh, there, there's lots of work to be done and, and relevant capabilities that can, that can be brought. Um, third, uh, the German Navy already has well-established cooperation agreements with the U.S., with the U.K., uh, and other countries. Um, but they have grown up, again, in the, in the sort of in the previous security context of maritime crisis management uh, uh, and, and so forth. Um, one thing to explore, we think, would be to actually, how do you translate those, um, those cooperation agreements with, and give them more of a, a Baltic and a, and, a, and a North Atlantic flavor, uh, flavor to them? Fourth, um, personal relationships matter a lot, um, and some of the new um, some of the new command and control arrangements that are that are being uh, that are being grown in Germany with the uh, BMCC, uh, that's an excellent opportunity for the U.S. to send a liaison officer um, to help build some of those personal relationships and, and get a get a bit of a, if you will personal feel for the operating environment and for some of the dynamics in the in a maritime domain in uh, in Northern Europe. Um, and last, and again, our um, issue brief primarily focuses on the Baltic, 
But again, the North Atlantic is important too, and they actually hang together strategically. These are not isolated, isolated domains. They they affect each other, and they they are linked. Um, so especially where we have a we have a, where we have an emerging ASW challenge in the uh, in the North Atlantic, um, there are real um, there are real contributions that the German Navy can make, especially with the P3s, um, which has been which has been one capability set that has been that has especially deteriorated. Um, um, across Europe over the last over the last 15 years, um, perhaps there's an, uh, perhaps one idea would be a P3 a German P3 rotation to Iceland uh, in Keflavik, where, where NATO has a uh, where NATO has a rotational presence. So those are some of the highlights of the report, and also sort of how we arrived at some of these. Um, and again, uh, happy to take your your questions and uh, and engage with you uh, further. And the, the issue brief is available outside for those who want to pick up their own copy for their their metro ride back to their office. Thank you. Well, Ian, if I could invite you to react to uh, Magnus's presentation and the exit brief more generally. Okay, well, pleasure. Thank you, Molly. I, I guess first I'll commend Magnus on his paper because if you read it, you'll, you'll see that it really does have a set of very practical recommendations that are operational and can be implemented, I think, with, um, in the foreseeable, foreseeable future. And then I'm also very excited to hear the two admirals talk about Germany's naval modernization plans because an increase of German military capability, I think, is definitely needed, not just in the, in the high north, but also in the Baltic. It's going to be an important driver of regional collaboration. I say it's important, and I'm focusing a little bit here on the Baltic, because I see the Baltic as kind of a seam in the Euro-Atlantic security architecture. To the north, you have um, you know, uh, two non-aligned states, and to the south, you have pretty much 90%, 95% all blue, NATO. And so to me, it's absolutely stunning with that kind of alignment that Russia with less than 5% of the territory coastline can impose an A2AD zone. And that to me highlights the fact that the, the West, NATO and its partners, are not really leveraging as fully as they could their geographic and operational capabilities. And Magnus's recommendations, I think, hit at that. For example, he suggests that uh, the United States make a contribution, uh, a personnel contribution to the uh, BMCC. I think that would be important. It would be useful insight for the United States. It would also help, I think, catalyze further regional interest in, in, that, uh, in, that, uh, in that command center. Uh, clearly, I think we're not doing enough to think about the naval role in reinforcing NATO's enhanced forward presence. I'm just wondering, in light of the fact that NATO's enhanced forward presence has significant shortfalls in air defense, air missile defense, ISR, fires, can naval platforms help address those, short, those shortfalls? Deeper integration, deeper collaboration, perhaps spurred by some of the initiatives that Germany is pushing, uh, can help bring Sweden and Finland more deeply into the fold. Uh, creating not just a, uh, helping eliminate that divide, that seam that we have that the Baltic Sea serves as, but providing those kind of uh, pillars across that seam that can all of a sudden help transform Russia's A2AD zone into basically a NATO A2AD zone. And then finally, if I had something to put on the table to add to Magnus's paper, in light of the fact that we have a significant Russian violation of the INF Treaty. Uh, we have the Russians basically now producing the, uh, a, a, a cruise missile that's in violation of the INF Treaty. It's, it's propagating the uh, caliber missile on a lot of its platforms, including very small platforms. And the West is going to have to respond in kind. 
And I'm wondering whether or not we should, Manny should have included in his recommendations that maybe the Germans and other navies in the Baltic be allowed to incorporate Tomahawk into their platforms. Because that's the easiest kind of mirror imaging response one could have to the Russian violation of the INF. It's a capability that would be useful not just against that contingency, but against contingencies that you, could, you, know, you would need to move ships around anywhere in the world. So that's my, my value added. Okay, thank you. And Vice Admiral Krause, do you have any um, reactions oh, oh, that you'd like to share? Yes, I have, I have lots of reactions, if I may. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't dare to talk too long. Let's, let's, let's start with uh, Sweden and Finland. Sweden and Finland, although they are not part of NATO, they are part of EU. And what they have agreed to is that they absolutely follow NATO procedures. So they are, although not being a NATO member, they are being part of the NATO family. And we don't, we don't distinguish between Poland or the Baltic states and Sweden and Finland from the military collaboration level. So they are, they are to be seen as militarily-wise or Navy-wise as full and potent NATO members who follow, who follow NATO rules and procedures. And uh, there is not at all any interoperability challenge uh, with, regard, with regard to that, despite the political situation in, in the Baltic. So, and with regard to, to cooperation, and I sense a little bit of, 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 of bilateral agreements necessity. We, we see the, the basis for cooperation is NATO. It is NATO that, is, that has been for, for many decades proved to, to, to offer us a common set of values, a common set of procedures, a common set of understanding, and was, was the baseline for any kind of interoperability that we have had in the past. And we should revitalize the maritime part of NATO. I, I recall that in the past, uh, the standing NATO maritime groups, be it the ships groups or be it the MCM groups, have been out, I would say, due to the, the lack of willingness to contribute to other operations, they have been used, and, and uh, Marcus, you mentioned that, have been used, for example, for Operation Ocean Shield, for counter piracy operations in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Horn of Africa. What we need NATO maritime groups for is to enhance interoperability and to, to, to exercise for the high end of maritime capabilities. And therefore, I really, I really call for a, for a revitalization of NATO standing maritime groups because they are, I would call, the, 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 the core piece, the core piece of maritime interoperability, common understanding, development of common sets, rules, and, and, and uh, and values, uh, so so I think we should we should refocus refocus on that. Uh, the role of the U.S. Navy in the Baltic, it is of utmost importance. And uh, there have been twenty years ago there have been initiatives to create from Russia, is, is especially uh, to create uh, extra regime for the Baltic as a kind of mare clausum. So as as they have an extra regi regime for the Black Sea. We always, we always uh, stated very clearly that the Baltic Sea is a part of the open oceans, and therefore we are ex of, ex of extremely importance, extreme, extreme importance that the U.S. Navy is constantly present in, in the Baltic. And when I see the, the big exercise ball tops that is annually conducted in the Baltic, that has changed focus a lot from, a, from I would say, a rather low-level cooperation exercise to now an exercise that is really dealing with the, with the, maritime, with the maritime challenges that we have specifically in that, in that region. Um, 
Cooperation in the Baltic is, is of utmost importance. And uh, it was mentioned, the Baltic Commanders Conference. The Baltic Commanders Conference, we invited this, invented it uh, two and a half years ago. Um, we conducted the first, uh, the first two meetings in Rostock just to get the group a little bit um, accustomed to the rules and, and let, let them better to know each other. It's on the level of the Navy chiefs and the fleet commanders. It is all uh, na uh, Baltic Sea neighboring nations, including Finland, including Sweden, not Russia. And it's including Norway as well. Although Norway is precisely defined, not a Baltic nation, that should also show the entity of, of, uh, of, this, of, this whole, of, of this whole area. And that's very important. And this, this exercise, we have in this in this in this conference we have created working groups, which are which are chaired by the different Baltic neighboring navies, and besides this this annual meeting, there is a very very uh, <coughs> intensive network going on currently, with, with in order to to enhance ability to develop common procedures, to find more training opportunities, uh, to do more on on maritime uh, picture compilation and all that. So that is. I would say the overall strategic theme for that is how to do more with the little number that the navies have in the, in the Baltic, just to enhance, enhance cooperation. The Baltic Maritime Component Command you mentioned, just to, to make it clear, it, is, it, it will be the, a, a German MAF4. It offers 25, up to 25 international billets. And just to make it clear, I would prefer not having liaison officers, but exchange officers. Who, who work in the job and to take responsibility and that. You know, a, a, a liaison officer is something to observe and report. An exchange officer is somebody to have a role and responsibility within the headquarters, and that is, that is very much important. I'll stop it at that time. There will be more to, to be said later on. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, if I could take the uh, moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, and primarily directed at Vitas Admiral Kraza, but also to the rest of the panel. Um, when I was in Rostock in 2005, you know, the briefings were about how uh, Germany was contributing to demining operations off the Horn of Africa. But of course, now we have a very different uh, security dynamic in Europe, as we've been discussing today. And so my, my question is about, in, in your view, what have been the key challenges associated with moving from that, that posture not so long ago to you know, where, we're, where you want to move today? I think I think the the, the, the trigger point, if I understood you right, mm -hmm. was was 2014. Mm -hmm. 2014, yeah. when we realized that um, that Russia was willing to to achieve political aims with military means, mm -hmm. whether it was little green men or whether it was uh, um, tra traditional and, and classical forces, that that doesn't matter at all at the moment. So here, that was I would say that was the the, the trigger, mm -hmm. and. Um, if you, if you uh, recall what has been said on the Munich Security Conference at that time, Germany taking more responsibility, and how that continued uh, to, to develop also uh, during last, last year's uh, white, white paper, where all these preconditions that we have mentioned ha have been set, um, I think we have, we, you see a clear path of uh, and in a clear understanding that uh, the decline of forces was overdone. Uh, that is not only true for the Navy, that's for the, uh, true for the whole Bundeswehr. And um, it was interesting 
to observe that, uh, that there was consensus in the political and public level. That, 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 we, need, that we need to invest more in order to, to really have enough capability ready for, 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 for tackling the challenges that we have in the, in the peace support operations on the one hand side, which, will, which we will be continue to participate in on the, on, on, on the same level, and in addition to refocus on the Article 5. It's not an either or, it is in, in addition. Yeah? Okay. okay. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges that are before our military commanders, not just in Germany, but here in the United States and in Poland and, 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 and such, is that they have a political leadership that has not yet shifted from an engagement and reassurance mindset into a real defense and deterrence mindset or deterrence and defense mindset. Uh, if you look back at the Cold War, and you look at the authorities that were shared with uh, military commanders, they're very different than they are today. I mean, for example, during the Cold War, we had massive exercises. You didn't have significant uh, or overbearing civilian oversight over NATO exercises. NATO commanders could counter-deploy um, in advance of an expected Soviet exercise in response to a Soviet SNAP exercise. NATO commanders did snap exercises. Uh, when NATO ships or aircraft were harassed, they didn't have to have a NAC meeting to respond proportionally. Uh, commanders had that kind of trust delegated to them. Uh, and then, of course, the resource issues and, and, and such. But it's reflective of a warfighting mindset that I think the alliance is only beginning to shift into today and has a ways to go before our military operators are going to be able to fully maximize the capabilities to the missions that they've been assigned. Thanks. Just, and again, I want to make a general comment that I think applies sort of more broadly to, to NATO, NATO member navies. I mean, sort of when you, when you dig into this, I think it's, it's actually quite sort of stunning how, um, how deep the shift or sort of how decisive the shift was towards um, uh, expeditionary uh, operations and crisis management. I mean, you can sort of, you know, pick your example, right? The, the Brits and the Dutch dumped their maritime patrol aircraft, the Danes gave up their submarines, the NATO command and control structures, you know, got thrown out the window and sort of uh, focused on a much smaller, you know, maritime command uh, and, and so forth. So, so in that sense, the, um, it was not only about sort of cutting resources, but I mean, there was a deci decisive shift among NATO member navies. Uh, that we were in a we were in a new world and, and sort of great power competition was a was a thing of the past. I think what we're seeing now is very very promising. I think uh, so. I'm optimistic. I think there are there, I think there's a lot of good things happening. Um, on the other hand, I think the road the road is long um, and it will cost some money. Um, and again, this is this I think this applies whether you were in the Baltic or the North Atlantic or the Mediterranean for that matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cold War. It ended in. 1989, that is nearly 30 years ago. That's a generation. That's a generation. That is a generation that has developed a totally different mindset on expectations. Um, and and when, we now, when we now turn around, and I totally agree what you have been saying, that is the, the and that's why I mentioned in my, in my little pre-briefing that, that these three turnarounds have different speeds. So the money, the money will be there rather rapidly. 
bring it bring it to bear and, and really really create capabilities that will take time all and and, and what, I, what I sensed in the last days also from from the US Navy side was we have to get faster absolutely we have to speed up the whole process that will take time all all the industry all the, our procedures our bureaucracies and what they have they have adjusted to the situation as it was the last 30 years and this turnaround now it will be a Process that might take that might take some time. That might take some time. And, and with this with this time, I think what we need is is a sustainable long breath to really to really continue strategically what we have decided upon now. And um, I can only say from 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 Germany what what I sense politically, publicly is this this there is a kind of 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 uh, perception this may never happen again. Because we have we have we have overdone we were maybe with the peace been in Europe we were we were encircled by friends that was that was the statements we 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 uh, we were, were confronted with at that at that time yeah. and now and now this is something positive and now we have to do all together and also in a kind of strategic common communication process to really support this process and give it give it the momentum that we need to continue if we are now you know. Too tactical, let's put it in, in, in this in this uh, quotation marks. Too tactical with the communication, it might it might also have a risk of that we lose the common the common momentum on that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if I could invite the uh, audience to ask questions, if I could ask you to identify yourself with your name and organization, and there's microphones coming around. Uh, Herb Rose, um, starting several years ago. Uh, Russia started making incursions with their fighters into the airspace of several Scandinavian countries. Um, protests were made by diplomats. Uh, nothing appeared to be done and the incursions continued until uh, there were incursions made into Turkish airspace. And after about 10 such incursions, um, Turkish aircraft shot down a Russian aircraft and lo and behold uh, six months later there was a bromance between Erdogan and Putin and uh, second only to the bromance between uh, Donald Trump and Putin so my question is um, if a NATO uh, uh, ship were to sink a Russian ship uh, or shoot down a Russian aircraft would we have a love fest in the North Atlantic or in the Baltic Sea? Please, yeah. no, so I'll, I'll just start. I, mean, I think to some degree, um, so no, I don't think we would have a love fest. But, but, but I think it's an important point in some of these close encounters. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real issue um, that we have to work through. And, you know, part of it is that that's the, that's the games that we play because we are, um, we're testing each other and we're, we're seeing what the other side will do. But again, but going back to, and again, this is not, I think this is different from the Cold War. So don't, don't misunderstand me thinking this, or if we just did what we did in the Cold War, everything would be great. However, I will note, though, that we actually, we had all these situations all the time during the Cold War. Um, but we, we sort of had, if you will, rules of engagement. And it was almost a bit of a, if you will, dance to it. They, they did something, and then we showed that we were serious, and we did something different, right? And it was almost this sort of 
for lack of a better term, sort of theater almost, where we, where we sort of showed off a little bit to uh, to each other. But it was actually regulated, and both sides understood what, who did what to whom and under, under what circumstances. Um, so I think we need to look towards sort of how do we reestablish that actually well-choreographed dance uh, 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 so we don't get into uh, misunderstandings or incidents that could, that could spin out of control. May I, may, as, as a military leader, I can tell you that is my, my, my greatest concern, that it comes to a misunderstanding and an overreaction on the tactical level, which, which, could, which could lead then to a deterioration of, of, this, of the political situation. And as, as, as Magnus just said, I have been operating as a, as a submariner in the Cold War in the Baltic. At that time, 90% of the Baltic was A2 AD area. We were operating under 100% air supremacy of Warsaw Pact. So, so also this A2 AD discussion that we're currently having with the, with, the, with the Baltic, it is serious. We have to have a look on it. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't overemphasize that because it has been the case in the Cold War as well. Harassment situations have been on a daily basis uh, cases. And, and what, what we have differently today is real world information. Uh, sorry, real time, real time information, sorry. Uh, that, that is, that, that, so that we get everything in a minute. And sometimes we tend to overreact emotionally on what is happening. And therefore, and this is now, <laughs> Really, a very, a very honest statement. We have to be careful. And when I was, when I was, and it was mentioned during my, my, my introduction, that I was the first Unifil uh, commander off the coast of Lebanon. So, so my, and I had ships with me, where the commanders ranged from highly experienced uh, senior grade commanders to lieutenants. And my greatest fear was an uh, overreaction in a tactical situation that was out of the plans, which immediately could then deteriorate the situation on, on the strategic or political level. It is, it is complicated. And that is also complicated in, in areas where we have asymmetry, where we do not know whether the fisherman that is close to you is waving with the left hand and pulling an RPG with the right hand and, and firing on you. So you cannot just take him out of the water. I guess the only thing I would add is that during the Cold War, we responded to those provocations. And our response to their provocation, the counter-response and such, created a dynamic where we did come up with these rules of engagement. Over the last several years, we have not responded to a single Russian provocation aside from the Turkish shooting, Turks shooting down a Russian aircraft. And my fear, because I'm not looking for a conflict with the Russians, but my fear is that with Putin in charge, in the absence of a response, a proportional response, he will just probe more. He will provoke more. And because we're dealing with you know, very sophisticated systems in an environment where the speed of decisions is accelerated by technology, the risk of a mistake, of a miscalculation, has increased. And with that, the risk of a potential collision, a red-on-blue collision, with many dangerous escalatory dynamics. So my point is, is not to encourage uh, more provocations, but how do we push back sufficiently to cause the Russians to rethink their strategy? And I think that's going to require a certain delegation of authorities in these cases to NATO commanders. If I may, now, now we are coming very close to, to, to the political discussion. <laughs> what, I, what I really would make clear is NATO, from my point of view, has always been primarily a political alliance. 
And even during the, the coldest time of the Cold War, the political dialogue was, was continuously being, being done. So the worst that, that can happen is that we stop talking to each other. We have to talk to each other. And I would really, I would really refrain from getting, from getting this kind of authority to respond in, in a way because this exactly bears the risk of uh, un, unwanted escalation. So my, my recommendation would be to, to report it on the political levels and have the certainty that the, that the response and the dialogue will be done on the, on the political level. Otherwise, otherwise, it could really run or end in a situation that runs out of control. But if I may, there's this. That's, I, I have brought with me the, the Captain, Captain Richter. He is a deputy N2 yeah. in, in the Navy Command, so maybe he can contribute to that. We don't have to forget is actually that uh, those provocations are not done to everybody on the same, same level. They are done to U.S. warships when they come into where they don't belong from Putin's side. But our warships, for example, are being left alone and we can sail even with our AGIs uh, 100 yards beside a Russian warship while they are testing their torpedoes. So uh, there is a difference and he's playing it very well. Mm -hmm. He wants to keep certain people out, uh, and he knows how to do that, but he's actually not provocating those who belong there. So uh, there, is a, um, there is a different dynamic in these uh, things, um, and he's playing it very well, and he's, he's a master of these uh, kind of stuff. So uh, I don't think that we are in a situation where the provocation would lead to uh, misunderstandings on a higher level because all these provocations are really uh, done after a book and he knows how far he wants and can go and he won't go any further so I think it is not as dramatic as many people would think it looks dramatic if you're on the Donald Cook and uh, there's a Russian <laughs> aircraft flying very very low over you uh, because he wants to say something with it but they are not flying over our, or the Swedish, or the, the other warships. So there, there is a difference, and I think it is, uh, it is uh, choreographed in a way that he also knows that he doesn't want a big provocation. So I, I think yeah. there, is, there is a little leeway in, in, uh, in these kind of things. I guess I just quickly respond, is you're just underscoring to me how he's effectively using these provocations to create divisions within an alliance. And that, to me, is, is a real concern. Sure, it is. Um, That's a real concern, so I, I agree with yeah. that. We have a question back here. Yeah. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman, a very former, former naval person. And my question is for the Admiral, but with an observation that in the very early 1980s, when we had a Supreme Allied Commander Atlantic, we used to go to annual conferences and the discussion today seems to have been lifted from the discussions in the very early 1980s, so I'm not sure how much times have changed. Adam, my two questions for you are this. First, we talk a lot about what needs to be done. We don't talk about why. I think your captain just made a very, very incisive point. How do you see Russian motivations? My sense is that Putin does not want a war. Sure. But what do you think we should be doing, and why should we be doing it in terms of using our military forces? And second, uh, I haven't really heard much about 21st century technologies. 
Nobody's talked about underwater systems. Nobody's talked about deception, disinformation. I mean, quite frankly, we may be building newer versions of 20th century warships, but I'm not so sure how suitable they are today to the type of environment we're going to face. And indeed, the far end of the spectrum, I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, General Gerasimov's doctrinal comments, which are really Sokolovsky warmed over. And so I don't think that there's any real change in, in putative Russian doctrine. But it seems to me that in terms of active measures and measures short of war is where we are really derelict. And I wonder what your thoughts are in incorporating 21st, 21st century technology in dealing with these non-linear, non-warfare aspects. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Two brilliant questions. Um, and and um, that, to, your first, to your first question or remark, it is uh, the, the what and why. Um, I totally agree. We must be careful not to co compare the situation prior 89 to the situation that we're currently now in. I, I think Putin does not risk a global war. So, so the, 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 the uh, collective defense will look differently to what it used to be until 89. I think that is, that is crystal clear, and therefore we must be careful to how to, how to react, and that is exactly why I also meant, we also our, our, our commanders out at sea must be careful how to, they, they have, to, they have this, this political picture in, the, in their backheads when, when they see things developing on, on the tactical level and what, what it might, might be used for. So I, I absolutely agree. Um, technologic, te technology, well, I, I have currently have my, 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 my nicest example is on, on, on development of technology. You know, the, 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 the technology that we're currently planning for will be there in the next 50 to 60 years as well, at least with the hardware of the ships. So what we have now in this, in this complex, in this complex world, of, world of technology is a wide variety. We have a wide variety of, of different innovation cycles. So, so the ship will still be there, but how can we manage, how can we manage to have the state-of-the-art technology installed? Uh, and that will be a challenge for, for industry. That will be a challenge for discussion with industry. And on that level, we must be really, really open-minded and honest to each other. So what are we developing? What is the wishes and de desires that we are going for? Um, uh, and um, I'll give you an example on, on the technology on the F-125, uh, which, which was mentioned, the, the new frigate that we will commission by the summer, the first of, of four units. She has a seven, more than 7,000 tons, we still call it a frigate. Names don't, don't matter. It's, it's still a frigate. She has a crew of 130. We will, we will procure four platforms and have eight crews for that. That has, is for two reasons the demographic development that we are having. So we can no longer afford to have a warship with a 250 plus uh, compartment. That, is, that, will be, that will be not possible. We won't find, simply we won't find enough young, young men and women to, uh, to, to man all those ships. So the technology now is highly redundant, automated, and being able to be dealt with by a crew of 130. Um, and this ship will be able to, to, to operate in an area far away from, from home for up to two years without the need to return. So that is, I, I would see, something that has to, to do with 21st century technology. Um, where I, I see some kind of risk, it's again a very personal statement, some kind of risk is the 
the mega trend to developing unmanned technology. Because I think in those times that we're currently describing, and it might, might continue with this, with a, with, a, with a huge amount of complexity in it, it is the, the man in the loop, the man in the loop will be the decisive factor. So if we rely too much on, on unmanned systems, which is understandable with regard to, to, to protection uh, and all that, uh, we, I think we have to go for a mix. We need both. We should not, we should not go too, too eagerly on, on, on unmanned, although it might techno technologically be an option. I agree on, 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 on laser weapons, so, so that, that, that is something where we, where we have to have a look into. Um, and uh, so we will also always be in a situation where we, where we have to distinguish between effectiveness and efficiency, and demography, and political support, and all that. So, so it is, and, and the risk that I see is that industry promises a lot, and we follow, we follow the development eagerly, and then we find out it doesn't work. It doesn't work yeah. as, as we, as we, as we, as we saw. Um, just two, two quick comments. Again, I think those were, those were um, um, great questions. And just one on sort of the, this sounds like the 80s. Uh, so to me, to me, it's a hybrid. So some things are different, right? I mean, it's where, you know, the, Ru the Russian Navy is not the Soviet Navy, um, you know, far, far smaller, uh, but much more, much more sophisticated. But in terms of geography, geography is what geography is. And in terms of you know, access to the maritime domain and where can you come from, and um, um, uh, that's not something that, that changes. So, so th those are sort of inherent strategic parameters um, that we must, uh, that we must um, uh, uh, contend with. In terms of technology, I, mean, I, I agree with uh, the Admiral. I mean, lo longer term, I think there's some really interesting stuff coming out in terms of distributed ASW, using big data for, um, sure. uh, for enhancing sensors and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and a lot of things that we did use during the Cold War um, are probably no longer relevant. SOSIS was great. Uh, but with quieter, with quieter Russian submarines, detection ranges are, are shorter. Uh, it's probably not going to help as much. And oh, by the way, that system is basically rotted out because we haven't funded it or, or, or used it much for, for the longest time. But I also sometimes fear that we overemphasize technology or, or, or sort of capabilities that we can touch. So, so you know, going back to A2AD, for example, that, that's, and, and, and the comment that was made here about who, who gets harassed in, in various places. Um, um, I think it's wrong to think about A2ED as this sort of collection of technologies in a sense of anti-ship missiles or air defense or, or what have you. Um, A2ED is a much broader co uh, uh, concept that includes politics, that includes economics. Um, so the way, I, uh, the way I view when, um, when the Russians are, are harassing the Donald Cook, whether it's in the Black Sea or the Baltic Sea, that's a scene of get out of here, you're not wanted um, uh, here, you, you're not welcome. Uh, and that's actually part of a Russian A2ED strategy of trying to push us out. Uh, of some of those, uh, some of those maritime domains. I don't have much to. I, I guess I would pull us back to the present because when I start thinking about future technologies, I'm thinking 2025, 2030, which is great, but I'm very concerned about the current situation in the Baltic, in the North, in North Atlantic, which I think is becoming more severe. So the question for me is, how do we leverage more effectively the technologies and capabilities we have now? If you look at the Baltic. I'm not convinced we have as robust an air picture, as robust as a maritime picture, as robust a subsurface picture as we could. And that's why I'm so excited about the BMCC uh, and, and, and such, because that can be a catalyst uh, for that kind of collaboration. 
Um, a lot goes on with NATO. A lot more can even go on outside of NATO between allies and between partners. And that, I think, is, is the urgent uh, priority of, of today. And I, I, co I couldn't agree more. Yesterday, we, we, we erected our cyber command in Germany. So it will be the have, finally, it will have the same size as the German Navy. Great thing. Cooperation under cyber, uh, and, 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 under cyber conditions. It will be a challenge. It will be a challenge for the future. Uh, cyber, cyber defense and social media expectations of, of youngsters joining the armed forces will be a challenge for the future. Because you know we are, we are, we are at least in, in, in my navy, we are currently having what we call an attractiveness campaign. So how to be as attractive as possible to being perceived as an employer that is getting from the little young people that we have getting enough for, as, as, as uh, what we need, and being as attractive as any other company that, that, is, that is in the area. And now we must be careful how, how we do that. And, and with regard to cooperation in all these fields, we must be careful not creating now a kind of protection around the nations with, with, with regard to, to, to cyber defense and all that, because this international cooperation under cyber defense conditions is and will be a challenge for the future. And with regard to the, to the pictures in, in the Baltic, I can tell you that all these nations I mentioned, they collaborate very, very closely. There is a, there's a, shared, a shared maritime picture. It's in, in the whole Baltic region, it's shared. We share information, we do so. We do so, we have a clear picture who's in the air, we have a clear picture who's out at sea. Underwater is a little bit more complicated, no doubt about that. Uh, but it is, it is uh, something we are doing. And we are doing that with many nations in, in the area. Yeah? And, and, and it, is, it, is about, it is about, and that's why I mentioned this, the, 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 the disadvantages of just going bilateral. What we, have to, what we have to do is we have to develop network of networks, not, of, not a global one. But we have to have networks of networks. Where these networks of networks has to be interconnected in order to really be technologically able to, to share, but much more importantly, mentally willing to share or daring to share. Because we are hearing for, for, for many, many years now, we are hearing the, 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 the shift of need to know to need to share. Where are we? Yeah? For the questions? Bugger? Oh, wait, wait, wait for Mike. Thank you. Uh, Vagumaradian from the Defense and Aerospace Report. Uh, Admiral, the question is for you. Is the concern, and I fully understand what Ian is saying in terms of you know, delegating that tactical control, but does that go to the experiential level of the forces? Because during the Cold War, everybody in the entire ecosystem was trained to be able to respond at these lower tactical levels. Is the challenge a little bit that you have to grow a new generation of tactical leaders who can respond to such high threat situation situations in sort of a more sort of disciplined, predictable manner. I mean, is that one of the concerns that you have is that the force itself, um, this has been a little bit akin to what General Mattis once told me, which was, you know, in order to get off a fire base in Afghanistan, it took 29 radio calls. Everybody was using the radio because they could use the radio. It's just nobody could make that decision, right? Is that a little bit of the concern that you have? 
It's a rather, it's a complicated, it's a complicated question because you know this this comparison between nowadays and the Cold War. So I'm I'm not quite sure, for example, how much ROEs we had during the Cold War. And the Cold War, because this this was an overwhelming situation. That if that we were we were sure once it started, there was only one modus defend, defend your lives, do whatever do. The ROE development, as far as I know, came, came later, came much later. That came especially due to the fact that the situation was not as, as clear as it was during the Cold War. So, so uh, today what we need is ROE. Today what we need is, is commanders who understand the political will that leads to the ROE. To, to, have, the, to have a picture, tactical and political, to know how to react on a specific situation, yeah, and 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 I think I think uh, with the, with this with this development in in the past where this clarity was lost a little bit, and, and, and I think that that's also what what you said, this decision making has become much more complicated. It has become much more complicated because what we really now have is the the tech, the, 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 the the tactical political leader and the strategic corporal out of the ground. So this, and this, this, this amalgamation that leads to, 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 really, to, real, to real challenges in the field, yeah? be it on land or, or, or at sea. Any further yeah? comments? Okay, next question. Uh, thank you, my name is Barbara Dello. Um, I wanted, to, uh, first of all, I wanted to say I'm glad, so glad to hear uh, your concern about our, our wit will to stand up compared to our adversaries. And um, but my question is, um, what kind of risk um, would there be um, in terms of global dynamics and resources if we were faced with a multi-front um, uh, danger, um, you know, from the, for Ameri from the American point, you know, in the, um, West and in the East, and, and maybe a wild card even from the South and the Mediterranean. Sure. So that's a uh, no. So that's a that's a big question, um, and I think it's I think it's important that obviously the U.S. is a global power um, um, and has global interests, whether it's in. Uh, in Europe, in Asia, in, uh, in the Middle East, and so on and so forth. So, it's, um, so I think it's a key question in the sense that obviously this cannot be um, like the Cold War. We could pour most of our resources into Europe or into the North Atlantic or, or what have you. Um, so in that sense, globally, this will be a balancing act for us, um, where we will have to balance between requirements in Europe and in Asia and potentially also tend to a... Uh, tend to a turbulent Middle East. So this is, this is where we will need our European friends and allies to step up and help fill some of those gaps uh, and, and, and cover before, before we can get there or, um, uh, or potentially help us. I mean, I think actually the Baltic Sea may actually be a good, good example there. And again, we need US engagements. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we should leave this to the, to the region. That's not the point. Uh, but for example, in, in some ways, um, um, Germany and Sweden and Poland and Denmark and other countries actually have 
uh, units and capabilities, in some ways, actually have units and capabilities that, that, are, that are actually tailored for this environment, where the US is not, because we actually have to come from afar, right? So we have the big ships, and we have the big carriers, and the big submarines uh, that are not necessarily always ideal for that, for that environment. So, so that's actually, I think, an opportunity for our European friends and allies to actually help us do some of that balancing and, and, and sort of guarding several goals at the same time. I guess I'd add that the question highlights the centrifugal dynamics that are testing the alliance's unity and will. During the Cold War, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but we had one urgent apocalyptic threat, and it focused our minds and our attentions and our resources. It was easier to develop that warfighting mindset at that time. It was easier to direct our operations against one you know, adversary. Today, if you look at the, uh, at the alliance, I think you can pick three or four, maybe even more fronts that pull the alliance in different ways, almost in a regional direction. You have an eastern front. Uh, that's of immediate concern to Central Europe, North Central Europe. You could throw in an Arctic front on top of that. You have a southern front of, of, you know, caused by the instability of failed or failing states that generate migrants and terrorism and that sort of thing that are challenging alliance unity. You think of the French interests, you think of the Italian interests, you think of the Turkish interests. And then you have a global, um, we're in an age of globalization where there are threats around the world that uh, aren't solely now of uh, US concern, but of mixed um, opinion in, in Europe. And here I'm talking about the Middle East and, and, and Asia Pacific. And so these are all pulling the alliance in different ways. And so the challenges before our political leaders as they marshal their, their military resources is much more difficult. It's much harder to get to consensus. It's much harder to get to agreement over how to prioritize challenges and prioritize resources to meet them. And if, if I may just, just elaborate on, on, the, on the contribution that the German Navy will be willing to, to do that in, in that in that cases is Article 5 business on the, what we call the northern flank continuation of the peace support operations on the southern crisis arch and presence operations in the what we call the Indian Ocean and maybe the yeah. wider Indian, Indian Ocean. And there will be, we have to play with the priorities on that. But it, it is, what well, I said, it is not an either or, it is an and, and, but in different priorities. And that has to, that has to be seen wherever. But what we, have, what we have to do is that we have to have different capabilities for that. The, 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 um, the, the F-125 I mentioned earlier, a ship that is being able to, to stay two years in operation would be a perfect, perfect capability to, to act in, uh, operate in the Indian Ocean. Whereas the Corvettes yep. are perfectly suited for acting in, in, in the Baltic and, and beyond in, in, that, in that area. Uh, and the new multiple combat ship that, that we are, um, that we are uh, planning to procure by, by starting from next uh, decade, mid, mid of next decade, she will be uh, uh, all areas covering very capable warship, also concentrating on ASW. Our submarines are concentrating on ASW. Yeah, so so it is it is to have this capability mix, and I'm, I'm the, the, what, what we what we gave up as a German Navy, and we will at least for the foreseeable future not not uh, regain is fast patrol boats. That was that was when the German Navy was mainly a Baltic Navy. Yeah, we were we were gotten the task to take care of the Baltic at that time, maritime wise. That is that is a thing of the past. It, and, and by the way, it doesn't it doesn't fulfill the requirements uh, when we're talking about attractiveness, living conditions, uh, and and uh, and uh, the the necessary 
flexibility in use. We, we had them, we had them, even this is FPBs in the Eastern Mediterranean. I can tell you in the wintertime, it is, it, is, it is a challenge. If you have seven meter sea state with an FPB in that area, but the men and women thought this is a challenge. So we, we made a decision, well, no longer <coughs> FPBs. That is, that is a, a capability of the past. Yeah? But Corvettes, they, they, have been, they have been proven to be very versatile in, in, in the spectrum that they can be needed for. If I could add, just, I think the Admiral makes an important point in, in the way his Navy is going uh, in terms of the use of modernization funds and development funds is the right way. They're focusing not just on their own immediate regional interests and security, but creating capabilities that can serve allied interests exactly. beyond the regions, in the Atlantic and even, even beyond. And for countries and allies of that size and that magnitude, that's the model to follow. Thank you. Well, our time this afternoon is uh, beginning to draw to a close, so I'd like to invite the panel for some final comments, and we'll go in the order that we started. So, Magnus? Thank you. Um, and also, thank you for, uh, to the audience for, for the questions. I'll, I'll, I'll be very brief. So, um, I remain an optimist about many of these things, if you look at sort of the maritime domain in, in Northern Europe. So, we think we have the commitment. We basically know what we need to do, broadly speaking, uh, uh, in Europe and here in the United States. And, and we're beginning to find some of those resources. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, the road is long and, and will require some resources. But what sort of worries me um, is sort of what are we missing? And this is almost a sort of Rumsfeldian unknown unknown. Um, and what I mean by that is what we have seen in the ground domain, for example, is when we started making these plans for reinforcements and exercises, a lot of the sort of devil in the details have emerged that we didn't think about when we got going. So let's send armor to the Baltic states. Oh, crap, they use a different rail gauge. How do we get the tanks off the rail and, and onto this other one to, to get there? So they're working through some of those things, right? And that's actually part of exercising and training. You can actually surface some of those issues and, and fix them as you, as you go along. Um, so I'm, um, I'm thinking about and worrying about what are we missing in the maritime domain? And again, some of those things will be, will be surfaced as we exercise and as we cooperate. Some of those things can then be fixed and, um, and tweaked. But obviously, if we can, it would be great to get ahead of some of those. So we don't we don't have to uh, we don't have to find this on, on the on the day of the of the exercise, um, and just to give one example, and I don't know the answer to this, but do we have enough torpedoes? Do we have enough sonar boys? Um, um, uh, those kind of stocks are actually important, and it's interesting to note um, the Royal Navy, while chasing one Argentinian submarine during the Falklands, uh, Falklands War, expended 50 torpedoes um, on one Argentinian submarine. They didn't sink it; they pushed it away. So it sort of fulfilled the mission, but never expended actually a lot of munitions. So it's one of the questions I have, and I don't have the answer is, do we have, do we have enough torpedoes across uh, mem uh, member nations? Or sonar boys for our, for our mar uh, maritime patrol aircraft? So, so the little devils in the details that actually become important, what, what are we missing there? Yeah, quantity can have a quality all of its own. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm, 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 very, I'm looking very much optimistically in, into the future, but, but it will take time. It, it, it doesn't go like, like this. It will not be, it will not be all achieved within, within a couple of, of years, let's say five or four or whatever. So this, this capability build up will need a strategic, sustainable endurance and, and breadth. And that is, that is where we also should focus on the strategic view. And that is, that is the, the all, all, the all picture that, that comprises all the different capabilities that has to be adjusted. And we should not follow too much the, the reality that is being displayed daily or minutely on, on, on the media that we are getting. So we should we always have to keep our strategic ambition in, in focus and should follow that. 
Um, for, for the maritime domain, Western maritime domain, NATO is of utmost importance. I've, said about, I've talked about that. I, would, I think there's nothing to add. And NATO without the US is not NATO, to make that crystal clear. And finally, I would like to thank you. I would like to thank the Atlantic Council for the second time opportunity to, to, being, to being invited to, to talk about that and to hopefully give you some, some information from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Thank you very much. And Ian? No, I'll be quick. I'll answer Magnus's uh, question, what should, else should be done by stealing one of his ideas. I think in light of where the German Navy is going, in light of the fact that other navies in the alliance are undergoing force structure changes, it's interesting to me that NATO really hasn't updated its, its maritime concept, its maritime strategy to match today's, today's environment. And I think to do that might be nice, somewhat deliverable. It would also perhaps give some coherence to these modernization efforts, and maybe even some political oomph uh, behind them. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to the audience for the questions that you've raised today. And thank you so much for the, uh, to the panel for your interesting comments and what a great discussion. Uh, please join me in a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.